Welcome to the Art Stories Podcast. So there I was, standing in front of a group of strangers attending a football game, being cursed out about Doritos. A minute or two later, Taylor Swift comes out and she like smiles at All-American Nashville smile and she, she introduces herself, she shakes my hand, hey, I'm Taylor, hey, I'm the groom. We're bringing you true personal stories told in the Southern tradition and recorded in front of a live audience. I caught just enough of the video to see a very large man making this slow walk toward a van, wearing absolutely nothing but his underwear and coated in grease. And I'm going to stop right there, and the rest of it is history. I'm your host, Chris Kinsley. If you're anything like me, then this time of year is probably pretty crazy for you. So I'm delighted we can bring you a little distraction by reminding you about just how wonderful and magical the holiday season can be. Now, I know we're a day late in getting this episode to you. I apologize for that, but we have some exciting news that I hope will make up for it that I'll share with you a little later in the episode. But right now, Let's get right to our stories. Now, both of them today come from our most recent live event where our theme was Tis the Season, Stories About the Holidays. And parents, I need to give you a little warning that these stories may reveal some of our most precious and guarded secrets pertaining to the holidays, if you know what I mean. So if you have little ears around, you may want to use your headphones or save this episode for later. Now, in our first story, our teller learns to appreciate the good from a couple of different holidays. Here's storyteller Elizabeth Shannon. So, as a Jewish child growing up in Alabama, all I ever really wanted for Hanukkah was a Christmas tree. My mother grew up in Fayette, Alabama, and they were the only Jewish family in Fayette, so they celebrated Christmas. So naturally, we celebrated Christmas, but we celebrated Christmas in a big way. Now, y'all, I I really love Christmas, so this is why. We had the stockings on the chimney. We had decorations all over the house. We made Christmas cookies. We sang Christmas carols. We, my mother used to dress us up in little red wool coats with a little red wool hat, and she would take us to visit Santa. And we told Santa what we wanted for Christmas. But my favorite thing about Christmas was the Christmas tree. We had a floor-to-ceiling Christmas tree. This was like Rockefeller Center to me. So we would decorate it with those beautiful multicolored lights and tinsel and ornaments, and we would string popcorn and cranberries and hang those on the tree. And it was magnificent and magical. So I don't know if y'all know this, but... If you're Jewish, you're really not supposed to celebrate Christmas. (laughs) So, (laughs) behind closed doors, some of us did. And so we celebrated Christmas every year until I was four years old when the rabbi dropped in for a visit. (laughs) And there we are in our glorious Christmas 
the Jewish Christmas, and my mother swore we would never, ever have another Christmas tree or celebrate Christmas. So from then on, she would, every year she'd bring out the menorah, and we would light the menorah lights. But as a four-year-old, this just didn't cut it for me. I mean, I was used to Santa Claus, you know, eight tiny reindeer coming down the chimney and bringing presents versus lighting the candles to celebrate a battle where they won the temple. It, it just didn't work for me. So every year I would beg, please, let's just have a Christmas tree, please, Mom. Nope, nope, bringing out the menorah again. So at six, I decided to convert. And I campaigned to convert. I mean, I went after my mother every day, please, let's just convert. That would solve all of my problems. No, we're not going to convert, please. My mom sat me down and she said, so do you really believe in Christianity? Do you really want to convert to Christianity? And I said, no, I, I want to convert to Christmas. So we didn't do that. So when I was seven, I made a deal with my mother. If I could procure a Christmas tree, we could keep it. So she said, okay. But she had no idea how determined I was. And I had already scoped this out. So we lived in this area with woods all around. And I had spent a lot of time in the woods. And I had seen some little pine tree saplings. And those seemed like the perfect Christmas tree to me. So one day after school, I go into my father's tool closet, and up on the wall, I see an axe. So this isn't just any axe. This is an axe from the beginning of time. <laughs> it was rusted. It was dull. But it was an axe, and that's what you use to chop down a tree. So I climb up on my father's lawnmower, and I reach up for the axe, and I yank it off the wall, drag it into the woods, and start looking for a baby pine tree. So I find my perfect baby pine tree, and I pick up that axe, and I swing the axe, only it swings me, and I keep going round and round, because the thing weighed at least as much as I did. So at one point, I actually hit the tree, and the tree just kind of shook. So I can see this is not going to work. So I throw the axe down, and I start to wrestle with the pine tree. <laughs> so I'm like pulling on this pine tree, and it's not budging. So I bend the tree to the left, and I bend the tree to the right, and I step on it, and I jump on it. But I don't know if you've ever tried to pull up a baby pine tree. <laughs> They're very green and they don't want to come up. So I just kept at it, bend, bend, step, turn, 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 and it started to splinter. So I can see I'm getting somewhere. I finally yank on that thing two hours later, and I got that pine tree out of the ground. The end was like all mangled and ugly. So anyway, I take the pine tree up to the house. And how do you stand a pine tree? I mean, I'm just this Jewish kid with no experience with a Christmas tree stand. I had no idea what to do with the thing. How do you get it to stand up? So I go into my room, and I spot the 
the metal trash can. And I put the pine tree in the metal trash can and it just falls over. So I go out to the driveway and I find four bricks and I bring those in and I prop them up in the wastebasket and I stick the pine tree in the middle and it worked. So my mother comes home from work and she walks into the den and she sees the pine tree in the trash can. <laughs> she rolls her eyes and she's like, oh no, you said we could keep it. And so she had to let me keep it. So I saved up my allowance for a couple of weeks and I went down to the five and 10 cent store and I bought some little ornaments and some tinsel and I decorated my Christmas tree and I was so proud and it was so beautiful. So every year after that, I managed to find a Christmas tree. One year, uh, our cleaning lady brought me a little metal tinsel tree, you know, one of those little ones. So that was our tree for a few years. And then in the sixth grade, my teacher raffled the class Christmas tree. We had to guess a number between 10 and 100, and my lucky number was four. <laughs> so I guessed 44, and I won the class Christmas tree. I'm not sure if I won or if my teacher just wanted to give it to the Jewish kid. <laughs> so my mother said no, she wouldn't go get it. My brother rescued me. He drove his car down to the school and we tied it to the top of the roof of the car and we took it home and I pulled out the little balls and the tinsel and we decorated the tree. And It was real, y'all. It was a real tree. So fast forward to my life as an adult. I moved to Los Angeles and I married a Jewish guy, much to my parents' surprise. And uh, I had two kids. My, my daughter, at 10, decided she wanted to be bat mitzvah. Well, we weren't a member of any temple. We were what I like to call Jewish light. <laughs> so my daughter kept hocking me, I want to be bat mitzvah, I want to be bat mitzvah. So I said to my husband, I think we're going to have to join a temple. So we did. We joined a temple and I enroll my daughter in the accelerated Hebrew class. And she studied with Cantor Wally. Now, I don't know if you know what a cantor is, but it's like a rabbi that sings. So she's studying Hebrew with Cantor Wally, and I enrolled my now three-year-old in uh, preschool, Jewish preschool at the temple. So I became super Jew. I did. I joined the board. I ran committees. I did fundraisers. I took my kids to temple on Friday night. I was really into being Jewish, but I still celebrated Christmas. <laughs> I had to have my Christmas tree. So my son's three, my daughter's 11. We're decorating the tree and playing Christmas music and cookies and the whole thing. The phone rings. My son says, I'll get it, I'll get it. And he runs for the phone and he, hello. Hi, Cantor Wally. So I feel my heart just pounding out of my chest. I know what's coming. I, I, I can hear the words already. So I turn for the phone and in slow motion, I just, I can't even get to the phone. And he says, we have Christmas tree lights. Here, mommy. <laughs> So busted. <laughs> so, hi, Cantor Wally. 
Yeah, we have holiday lights. I felt the sins of the mother revisited on the daughter. But I did learn three very valuable lessons from this experience. The first one is kids cannot be trusted. The second one is history will repeat itself when you least expect it. And the third one is Christmas trees are magical no matter what your religion is. Thank you. Elizabeth Shannon is a local activist in Birmingham, Alabama, and you can find her on Twitter or Instagram at 625Elizabeth. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for any time at all, then you hear me mention our upcoming live events in every single episode. But you've probably also noticed that every single one of those live events take place in Birmingham, Alabama. And maybe you're nowhere nearby, or you have friends that would love ARC stories, but they live out of town. Well, we have some exciting news for you. We are going to be taking ARC stories on the road, and we want you to help us decide where we should go. All you need to do is fill out our survey at arcstories.com survey, and by doing so, you'll also be entered into a drawing for an Amazon gift card. Again, that's arcstories.com survey. Now, in our next story, our teller takes on the role of a holiday hero who doesn't always get all the press, but who is still well-beloved. Here's storyteller Terrence Jackson. My very first experience in theater was in my middle school production of Beauty and the Beast. I played Belle. (laughs) Just kidding, I played the Beast. My best friend at the time was in theater, and he was amazing. I mean, he was outstanding, and everybody loved him. He was basically famous, so of course I wanted that. I wanted to be famous. So I did what most middle school boys choose not to do. I joined drama. (laughs) And through luck of a classmate of mine dropping out, I was cast as the beast. And I was terrible, y'all. Like, I was not good at all. But when the play ended and uh, my, fi- my final scene was over, uh, people clapped. Um, and they clapped loud and they loved it and they loved me. And so I was very excited about it and I wanted to continue to do it. And I've been chasing that feeling ever since. I chased that feeling all the way through high school when I went to performing arts high school. And I chased that feeling all the way through college when I got my Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in acting. I remember telling my classmates, like, I just wanted to be in front of people. I didn't really care about getting better as an actor. I just wanted to perform. (laughs) Like, I wanted to be famous, y'all. That's what I wanted to do. And it wasn't until I got, uh, a couple of days after I graduated college, I joined a company in Abingdon, Virginia, called The Barter Theater. Um, And under the direction of Katie Brown, uh, who was uh, one of the artistic directors there, I started to learn that uh, acting had nothing to do with being famous and that this was a craft that you had to learn. And I went through a bunch of ups and downs until one day Katie Brown offered me a part in the national touring production of Frosty, the musical, (laughs) as Frosty. It 
It was a joint production with a company called TheaterWorks USA, which is the largest national touring company for theater for young audiences um, in the nation. They were based out of New York City, and a lot of their um, actors have become famous. They had a strong alumni base, so I thought, yep, this is it. This is my chance. I'm going to become famous, even if it meant I had to play a snowman. <laughs> so for three years, during the holiday season, I traveled around playing Frosty. I did over 130 performances and performed for over 80,000 audience members in the United States and all the way into Canada. Now, this was not your typical Frosty that you grew up with, okay? Now, this Frosty not only sung songs, but he whipped and they neighed, he dabbed. <laughs> he did the splits, all right? Now, yes, this body did the splits, okay? <laughs> a little synopsis of our story of Frosty, because it's a little bit different than you might uh, remember from the original movie. Our play took place uh, December 23rd, and a homeless man named Patty Moran uh, who lived in uh, Central Park in New York City. He befriends a young boy named Billy who has run away um, from his orphanage um, in Florida to come to New York City um, because he promised his now deceased mother one thing, that he would build her the best snowman ever. And so add in a magical hat that belonged to Patty's family um, that brought Frosty to life some amazing chase scenes with a police officer, uh, Patty, Billy, Billy's social worker, and <laughs> yeah, and now a uh, walking, talking, and and dancing snowman. And now you've got our play. <laughs> Frosty has a line in the musical. Um, every time he experiences something new for the first time, he says, "Wow, this is so cool!" Right, and this. This was amazing, this was super cool, all right? Like this play took me all over the world. I mean, well, and by world, I mean the US and Canada. <laughs> but for me, Canada was the world, so I was hype about it. But it took me to places, big, big cities, uh, New York City and, and small cities as well, and a lot of the cities uh, were in the South. Um, I remember at a meet and greet after the show, um, I was handed a baby to take a picture with after the show. Um, and I looked <laughs> at the dude who handed me the baby and he was wearing, um, you know, he had a Confederate flag on his shirt. And now this was huge because Frosty was black, you know? So like, <laughs> to me this was a monumental occasion, okay? <laughs> now let me backtrack here because you might be thinking to yourself, well, you played Frosty, you probably had on like a huge headpiece and you probably had on like a huge costume and you looked like the Michelin tire dude and, or like Olaf on Times Square, like Macy's thing. No, it wasn't that at all, all right? So like, my, let me tell you what my costume looked like. Um, so my hair was painted, spray painted silver before every performance. And I had to grow a beard every winter, so I, I, my beard uh, was frosted and my eyebrows were frosted. But, you could tell that I was black. So you might even say that I was a chocolate frosty, okay? <laughs> so, so it was a big deal when you, know, when you pull up into a place in the South and you, you get handed a baby, and so you see that now. The show took me to big arenas. I remember doing a show for 1,700 students one time 
And there's no greater feeling than hearing 1,700 students in the Bronx going, Frosty, 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 like outstanding. One time we were in Ann Arbor, Michigan, on a Saturday during football season, and over 900 people came to our public performance. And the meet and greet for that show was absolutely insane. The people, I saw people get into fights because they thought that their child should take a picture with Frosty next, y'all. Like, that's what famous people have to go through, you know? <laughs> I mean, I was basically Elvis, okay? I mean, I know I was a snowman, but I was like the Elvis of snowmen, okay? I was the Taylor Swift of snowmen, okay? One time I saw, I saw a husband and a wife get in an argument because the husband wanted to take a picture with Frosty, but the wife also wanted to take a picture with Frosty, and who was gonna take the picture, you know, who was gonna take the picture first? And they got in a fight with each other, and that, that's what famous people go through. And I got to go through that as Frosty. And this is what I wanted, or at least this is what I thought I wanted. Like, this was famous, this was fame. But then, you know, the people would leave, and the, the kids would stop laughing and telling Frosty that they loved him, and I would go backstage and take my makeup off and uh, get out a costume, and I would tear down the set with the rest of my cast and crew, and we would get back into our Ford Transit Sprinter van, and we would go on to the next location, and I was just normal, regular old Terrence again. And I went through this like up and down of like, well, this is fame, and then I'm back to like nobody in like less than an hour. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself that like, I will never play a part as big as Frosty ever again. <laughs> I mean, he was the man. I mean, he was the snowman in the greatest time of the year, Christmas. Uh, Frosty uh, says to Billy in the show, Every year when it snows for the first time, some kid decides he wants to build a snowman in his front yard. So he starts packing snow and rolling snowballs, and before you know it, I'm standing there. Just a regular old snowman stuck in the front yard watching the world go by. But not this year. This year you built me. You put this hat on my head and you brought me to life. You taught me how to walk and now I'm not stuck anymore. Now I get to see the world instead of watching it pass me by. And so I started seeing the world for the very first time, just like Frosty. I started seeing the people around me, my cast and crew for the very first time. And I started looking at them as my family and like all the things we got to experience. Like the time I almost missed a performance in New York City. In over a hundred performances, I had never missed I had never missed a show until this one day I was tasked with my other castmate, Michael, to park that same Sprinter van in New York City. Now, <laughs> if you know anything about Sprinter vans, they're ginormous, okay? They held our set, our props, our costumes, all of our luggage in it, and there's no place to park in New York City. Now, with this show, we didn't travel with understudy, so anytime uh, if anything had happened to me, they would just have to cancel the show. Um, but at this particular performance, because we were in New York City, uh, there was an actor who, at our local theater, did a small version of Ferocity. He did it for about 30 performances, and he was now living in New York City. And so, with 45 minutes to the show going up, we're still in the middle of Times Square trying to park this thing. 
I get a call from the stage manager saying, hey, Terrence, uh, here's a couple of um, garages that you might want to try to park the van in. Also, um, get back, but if you don't make it, it's okay because so-and-so is here and he can do the part until you get here. And I said, not today, Satan. <laughs> Not while there is life in this chocolate frosty body of mine will I ever let a vanilla frosty take over for me. <laughs> Hung up the phone. Michael and I immediately found a parking garage. I cannot make this up. The parking garage was called Ladies Lane. That day, two gentlemen parked that vehicle in Ladies Lane. It was Gentleman's Lane that day. We parked it. We paid, we had to pay double because it was oversized vehicle. We had to get out of there. Thanks to Google Maps, um, we found out it was gonna take us about 30 minutes, a little over 30 minutes to get back to the theater um, by train. And so we bought our, uh, our subway tickets, we hopped on the train and we got, got on it, barely got on it. I mean, it was slammed. If anybody's ever been to New York City, right on the subway, in the morning, it's, it's ridiculous, okay? Like, I don't know how people go to work every day. I would just say, I quit, I'm not going to work, okay. <laughs> but we got to the theater with less than seven minutes before the show, and our costumes were already laid out for us, our set was up, the props and everything was done, our team was amazing. All I had to do was just hop in the costume, spray my hair because hashtag frosty. <laughs> and we did it. And the show was amazing. And I couldn't have done it without the people that I was with and the team that was around me. And during my time as Ferocity, I, I learned a few things uh, about myself and that I think uh, you guys can take with you as well. Number one, chocolate Ferocities will always be vanilla Ferocities. <laughs> so just know that forever. Number two, I'm not famous yet, um, but performing in plays like the holiday season are always better when you're surrounded by people that you love and trust the most. And three, Frosty says to Billy at the end of the play, have you ever experienced life for the first time? And Billy says, I, I hope so. And if you look at life through the eyes of a snowman, that wow, this life could be so cool. Thank you. Terrence Jackson is a producer, actor, and host for YM360. Check him out on Instagram at Terrence D. Jackson. Now, if you want to hear more good stories, obviously subscribe to this podcast, even share it with a friend. But also, don't forget to fill out our survey at arcstories.com survey to help us decide where we should feature events in the future. 
And if you already love our events in Birmingham or know someone you love who does, then you might want to consider getting some of our season tickets for 2018. They make the perfect gift for that special person in your life. You can learn more at arcstories.com slash season tickets. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to the Arc Stories podcast. I'm Chris Kinsley, and you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Chris Kinsley. Arc Stories is at all those places, too, at Arc Stories. This podcast is produced by me and Arc Stories director Taylor Robinson. Preston Lovingood composed our theme. Special thanks to Eric Chapman from Symmetric Sound for his audio expertise, as well as to Betsy Lee, Audra Whaley, Aaron Moon, Leonard Lee Smith, Ryan Whaley, and Jamie Golden for making this episode possible. If you like our show, please rate us and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. It is such a gift to us. So with that in mind, I want to especially thank LSpace22 for your recent review. You can leave your own just by going to arcstories.com slash Apple. And while you're there, be sure to look around the rest of arcstories.com. You can listen to other stories, you can stay up to date with all of our events, and you can even submit your own story to tell. After all, we are always asking, what's your story?